No, let me explain something to you. You know what my idea of a good time is, ladies and gentlemen of the German nation, or whoever else is watching this stupid broadcast? My idea of a good time is the biggest problem facing the world today is mental health. If everybody had good mental health, then all the other problems would be solved. Because in order to take care of mechanical and um, uh, practical problems, you have to have good mental health in order to attack those problems. If people have motives that are not worthwhile, then those bad motives are always going to creep into their activities. That, and you see that every day from the way the political people work. If people were just in a position to have their minds functioning right, then everything else would fall into line. Now that's what I'm after. That's my dream. Now that's a dream. That's probably not going to happen, but that's my dream. All right, kids, here's a real rock and roll song. to shut up with his triple black tongue, baby. Woo! It is the Golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow, Savzu, the rated R radio star, the man that some call, woo, woo, 
the most interesting anarchist in the world today. Here for some Sovereign Tech, and baby, we've got so much to get into. It's true every single goddamn week, but this week, maybe more so than ever, and just some fascinating subjects uh, that I actually, I cannot wait uh, to get into. Things that, some things, honestly, I never thought I'd talk about. Like, like that just, that should not come up in a tech show, but holy hell, they're going to come up in a tech show. And of course, whoo, if you didn't see it on what was it, the, the 13th, what's, what's today's date? Today's the 14th. Yeah. So it was like the 12th, the 13th, because they did it really late at night. Nintendo held that big switch event, right? Ooh, we're going to talk a little bit about that when we get to it. Uh, cause that is a hell of a thing. But before we do. Why don't we get into a little bit of that foreplay, baby? Let's talk about a little bit of the tech news that came out this weekend. And actually, I'm going to give you a little bit of commentary during the foreplay this weekend. There's not going to be a whole lot of, uh, not that there wasn't a whole lot of news, but the bulk of the tech news really the past couple weeks, uh, or should I say maybe the more interesting stuff, has really been revolving around CES. And I'm going to have a CES special come out uh, on uh, on Patreon as a as a Patreon episode. So if you're not a patron yet, all you got to do, you just go to SovereignTech.com. It takes you right to the Patreon page. You don't have to look for a link. You don't have to click around, baby. If you want to help support independent media, you want to help support independent tech journalism, and believe me, I am as independent as it gets because I think the rest of them are in the fucking pockets. We're going to talk about that uh, in a little bit here. Of course, we talked about it before on Sovereign Tech over the years. Woo! But... If you want to support it, at least a dollar a month, it's pay what you want, but at least a dollar a month and you get access to hundreds of hours of, of extra content. In fact, I just did uh, a, a second part in the series of, and I know you might not think this is tech related, but people go apeshit. Okay. I have some degree of metrics of what happens when this stuff, but when, when people, when I do my top eights and I've been doing uh, comic book ones recently for different companies, people have been flipping. I mean, like they, they, they eat it up. I get a lot of response and, and, and people just love it. So if you want to get your hands on that, all you got to do, sovereigntech.com, S-O-V-R-Y-N tech.com, become a patron and you get all of that. And it comes on your own custom RSS feed. You can put it right. You don't have to download it from some, some special site. You don't have to go anywhere. You, you get a custom RSS feed just for you that as long as you're a patron, it works and you can download the episodes, you can rock and roll and you can have all the good times with all of those episodes. Cause I have a lot of fun and you get to have, you get the Wednesday Q and A's where people ask me, uh, you know, you can ask me any kind of question you want. Sometimes it's philosophical, sometimes it's tech and you get right in on it, baby. I love it. I cannot, I'd love doing Patreon. I love really connecting a lot more deeply with, uh, listeners and fans of the show it means the world to me. So thank you to all the, and we get new patrons every week and, and it just, it, it's really, for me, it's validating and I really appreciate it. So Anyway, enough of that. Uh, last week, when I had the lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy on, and boy, did people love that episode. I mean, the amount of email I got about the Holocene calendar, which I also talked about more on a recent Patreon episode, uh, the amount of email I got about the Holocene calendar was, uh, I mean, through the roof. Uh, you know, people really excited about that. So why don't I give you today's date? It is woo, January 14th. 12,017 baby. Yeah. <laughs> We're in the human era now. I am I love it. So I'm going to use that every single week. We're gonna, this is a Holocene calendar show, no doubt. So all right. Um 
Anyway, got a lot about that, but something else that people really liked, they loved the website that I mentioned at the at the beginning of the show, uh, which is in the appendix pretty much for every episode of Sovereign Tech from now on. And that uh, website, of course, was ssd.eff.org because it's done by the EFF, uh, but it's surveillance self-defense. And I'm glad people got a great response to that. And since people like that so much, well, I've got another website for you that I want you to check out. Uh, and that is, it's called thatoneprivacysite.net. Okay, so the site is actually called That One Privacy Site, uh, and it's all, all spelled out. There's no numbers there, uh, and, but it's .net. And what's great about this website, I, I really like it, actually. It, it does something that I talked about on this week's, I, I gave a more personal touch on the whole matter, but we were talking about VPNs because this is a subject, you know, a lot of these security tools you have to keep revisiting, you know, as often as you can. Um, but there's a website here that does an excellent comparison of each one. Now, I talked about what my favorite one was on Patreon on the Q&A this week. Uh, but, you know, if you want to get it like a full breakdown and really and even learn more about VPNs and how they work and all this. I mean, there's even like like comic books on this site about VPNs. <laughs> like it's it's a really, really well done site. And they do a lot of other stuff, not just VPNs. Uh, but I thought it was a fantastic site. So this might be a resource that you want people to check out uh, and that you want to you know, that you want to look into. Uh, but, uh, anyway, and if you want to hear, you know, more of my personal thoughts on VPNs, of course you can become a patron and, uh, you know, and, and jump on that, uh, that episode, but you know, important information, I make sure you get it here no matter what, you don't have to pay for important info like this. Uh, so that one privacy site.net. And of course the link is in the appendix of the show notes for episode two Oh eight. If you want to get on to that now, Speaking a little more privacy, this is something that I've had my eye on for a little bit. Um, you know, we talk about the importance, and actually, if you go to that ssd.eff.org, uh, they give you an explanation of what's called OTR. OTR is off the record. Um, this is a encryption uh, uh, scheme for scheme. It doesn't mean a bad thing. It just means, you know, an implementation. Uh, so an encryption implementation for if you're using like chat software, particularly something called XMPP. Now XMPP is a chat standard. Okay. Protocol standard. That's been around for a long, long time and it's still used. And actually even the big boys back in the day, that being Facebook, which woo, we're going to talk about Facebook in this episode, Facebook and Google, they both, uh, you know, had XMP like Facebook messenger was originally based off of XMPP. That is no longer true, uh, up to a couple of years ago and Google talk, you know, which turned into hangouts or whatever they're doing. Um, that was also based on XMPP because it's such this, it was, this. it's, it not was, it is this great extensible protocol and it's really tried and true. Um, so a lot of companies, you know, when they're starting getting into the chat business, usually they'll just base something off of XMPP. Uh, and thankfully though, that this, this tried and true, you know, protocol chat protocol has not gone away and people have not stopped developing for it, even though you already had pretty good encryption for it, you know, with OTR and all the rest. But, uh, this just this past like month, I think that, and I, I didn't catch this until, you know, until later on or until just recently, uh, but O memo that's O M E M O, uh, O memo is another, uh, you know, encryption, uh, scheme that can be implemented through XMPP. And the beautiful thing is, is that a lot of, 
a lot of clients that support XMPP. Now, I mean, here's the thing. So here's why a lot of people maybe don't use XMPP. It's because you have to register, uh, you know, your handle, your account effectively with, you know, some other service. And it's easy to, it's kind of easy to find those things. Um, especially like if you used, uh, say an app like pigeon or something, uh, but Actually, Pigeon wouldn't be your best bet as far as get, taking advantage of, uh, of o, o Memo. But on Android, there is uh, the app Conversations, which I think is a pay-for app. Uh, or maybe it isn't. Maybe it's like two bucks, if I remember right. But I use it. it it's it's a really rock-solid XMPP app. Um, but a lot of these apps, and even like CryptoCat, CryptoCat actually uses XMPP and has OMemo built into it. Um, so th- this is, you know, this is a really, you know, well-looked-at, you know, well-combed-over uh, you know, new encryption uh, uh, standard that you can use on top of XMPP. And again, uh, or Gaijim, that's another one I think that works really well, or Profanity. Uh, there's a plugin for Profanity, I know. I, I love the name of that chat app. <laughs> but anyway, this is out there, and and it's a new one that, that can be taken advantage of, and I, I think it's it's really slick. I'm glad that, uh, you know, that it's, it's finally really kind of come into its own uh, and that it's been looked over uh, by various, uh, you know, security consultancies, uh, which is great. So, I mean, and these things have just been finished up. Like I hadn't really talked about it before just because, you know, I mean, it's not like it's uh, that new of a standard. I mean, it started uh, may, maybe a couple of years ago. I think they might have started working on OMEMO. That might have been the first time I've heard about it. But now it's been combed over and, it, you know, it, it's in really good shape. So this is a nice addition to if, you know, if you want an encrypted uh, a chat of any kind, you know, going with something that uses OMEMO is you know, I, I, I think that's a that's a fine a fine thing to do. So anyway, uh, yeah, so. Now I kind of want to get into th- those are actually kind of the only the, the main two stories I wanted to bring up for um, for the, you know, for the foreplay, because I want to I really want to talk about the Nintendo Switch. And then we've got a huge subject to talk about with Facebook, something that, well, this is the thing that I, I just never thought that I'd ever be talking about, but I'm going to end up talking about it. Uh, but before I do, I kind of want to get into, into a little bit of a, you know, just a little commentary here. Uh, because I've gotten a lot of emails, a lot of people messaging me, asking me, you know, what's the deal with the Russian hacks? What's going on with all of this? Oh, my God. Did, uh, uh, there was a, uh, uh, you know, a, a power plant or whatever in Vermont that or a power company in Vermont that got hacked into by the Russians, blah, 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 blah. Oh, um, and I, I think what we need here is a little bit of a reality check. OK, on, on all of this stuff, because. While there is reality in that certain things, you know, may have happened, say like DNC hacks from the Russians or that there was, you know, some kind of PHP hack or something found on, uh, you know, found on a computer that was at a, you know, a power station effectively or at a power company in Vermont or whatever. Um, And understand that it was a computer there. It's not a computer that was in any way connected to any of the systems in Vermont. Okay, (laughs) it's just a computer that was there. So as far as, I guess, in the abstract, what I want to say is, as far as in the abstract of, are the Russians, you know, hacking into everything in the U.S.? Are there these massive cyber attacks going on? Blah, 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 blah. You know, and I know a lot of people are very concerned. They're like, all all of these, these cyber attacks are being used as the excuse to somehow enter World War III 
to somehow, you know, oh, we got to we got to take on Russia, you know, even though it looked like Hillary was going to be, oh, yeah, we're going to go after Russia. But Trump, you know, uh, you know, the Orange King won, uh, you know, won the election. And, well, he's kind of buddy buddy with with Russia, blah, blah. I mean, just like th- there's so much going on seemingly around this whole idea that the Russians are hacking us. The Russians are hacking us, you know, us being the United States. I think it's important to take a step back and when any time you hear any of these stories go down and we don't have the, you know, we don't have all of the information around any, around a lot of these stories really. Okay. But it's important to take a step back when, when you hear this stuff. And what I want you to do is, is that, you know, there, there's certain, there's certain security researchers and security professionals out there that they really, you know, they like Brian Krebs, I don't know, Chris Sagoyan, maybe some others. I'm not saying anybody, any of these people are perfect. I'm just saying that, you know, or how about Dragos? I mean, there's, there's some others that, you know, maybe look into see, see what they're saying about this sort of thing when it happens in the first place, because there's, there's a, a big difference, you know, if, especially if a lot of these things, I mean, there's so, okay, take the Vermont case you know, like where, where this computer was found at the power station that had supposedly huge, supposedly, or, I mean, yes, it had, it did have, you know, some degree of malware on it. Okay. But supposedly the supposed is towards that. It was from the Russians. Okay. This malware that was found could have been bought by anybody put on there by anybody. I mean, like, and, and again, the computer itself was in no way connected to anything of, of import. There is pretty much just a laptop that happened to have the shit on there. I mean, my point being, okay. You know, I mean, like, I, I think that that the, the way the headlines were pushed for that, it were very sensationalized, which, you know, no, no shock, no surprise there. Okay. But what was going on there, you know, was, uh, yeah, I could see that being used as, okay, let's get the American public, you know, ramped up for war. We're going to, you know, the Russians are going to shut down our power stations now, or, you, you know, we're, we're going to have to do something about this, blah, 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 blah. So now this kind of stuff is nothing new. I mean, in fact, it's very reminiscent and some people have been comparing it to, and I understand why, you know, comparing it to, uh, Bush's WMDs, like that, all these Russian hacks, be it for the election, for whatever, that they all are related to, um, you know, they're very similar to the claims that, oh, the Iraqis have weapons of mass destruction. We got to go take them out before they use them or something. Right. Now, not to say that there weren't other reasons for, in particular, that the Iraq war, you know, of 2003, you know, and all the, you know, 2002, 2003, all that, not to say that there weren't other reasons as to why that happened. And some of them are positively, you know, equally ludicrous because again, they didn't have WMDs as far as we, you know, oh, well, who are you going to believe on that one? But there's a big difference. And that is, is that a lot of the evidence that existed, including the WMD WMD evidence for, you know, for starting the Iraq war was evidence that really only, only if you have the, uh, uh, the resources of a state actor, are you able to like even verify or are you able to do anything, you know, about it, you you know, and, and, even like see it, like even to collect that kind of information, you'd effectively have to be a state actor. And here's the big difference now is that when, and this is going to be something going forward because cyber attacks are a reality, regardless of who's doing them, they are a thing. And do they get done against nation states? Yes, absolutely. They do. Uh, is it always by another nation state? No, 
But these things are, you know, cyber attacks are an absolute reality. But here is here's a huge difference, okay, between that and as far as like, you know, how you used to get, you know, the, the usual precipitations to war, like say the evidence or the lack of evidence really for WMDs. And that is, is that in, you know, in cybersecurity, a lot of the tools that exist out there, I mean, most of the internet really does operate on a lot of open source software, you know, and a lot of the security software out there, a lot of, you know, security implementations are very much open source. It doesn't mean that they're good things like you consider open SSL, right? Which has lots of problems. But, you know, independent security researchers can look into, you know, once once the evidence, once, a, you know, a little bit of evidence, and usually people have to be, even if they're being lied to, they have to be told those lies, okay? Uh, and so when the CIA or the FBI or whoever says, okay, this is the, this is the, 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 the evidence, the proof we have, the digital proof of a cyber attack by Russia, blah, blah, blah. Now, independent security researchers who are not nation states nor tied to them can you know, due to the nature of the digital world can actually look into this for themselves. And when they do, they can say, Whoa, hold on a second. You people are, are full of shit. Now, of course, people have to be willing to listen to those voices, but the kind of the fortunate thing we have now is that really like the authorities on, on, so that, you know, in the past, the authorities on intelligence will say, you know, on, on matters of, you know, like say people from the CIA or something, right. On, ma on matters of say signal intelligence, intelligence in general, right. Like usually the only authorities you could find on that were people that actually work for the government in cybersecurity. The authorities aren't in government. The, the authorities, I don't mean as in like people with guns. I mean, as in people who are the most knowledgeable and who are the most recognized, they are not working for nation states. And so they can independently look at this information, at the evidence that gets brought out, and they can say, I find this wanting. I like th th this is not good enough. You, you have no claim uh, that this is Russia. In fact, there was a great story uh, from the Daily Beast. It was how the U.S. hobbled its hacking case against Russia and enabled truthers. I put the link in the show notes for it. You can check it out. And also, there was a great coverage of this um, by... Uh, by Steve Gibson, personal hero of mine on his security now podcast it was episode five ninety four. I put a link to that as well, um, in the show notes, in the appendix of the show notes, you know, just so that you can, you can look into this for yourself, but the evidence is there that look, you know, a, the U S really doesn't know what it's doing. And B, a lot of times it is actually, it's really not proving anything like the evidence that they, that they're, they're laying out is, is terribly inconclusive. And this is the thing is that, while I'll be the first to grant you that, you know, anything, it's, it, it's so hard to prove so many things, you know, when it comes to the digital realm, when it comes to the internet in general, but what's not hard to prove. Okay. And security researchers are really good at this. And I'm glad is that they are, it's easy to, to make certain, not that you're certain, but to make certain that you're not certain of where something's coming from. Like a lot of these different attacks are coming from, you know, we're through Tor nodes and it's like, and, and yet the FBI is saying, oh, well, shit, uh, you know, but this is coming from Russia. You don't fucking know that they're coming from Tor nodes. They could be coming from anywhere. You know, I mean, unless somebody wants to claim, well, but they've, you know, they've cracked Tor and, and they know where, you know, where the entry was and all that stuff, but that's not the evidence that they're providing. And so my message is, is that, look, you know, when you hear about this stuff, please, you know, hit up Twitter, whatever, and just, you know, check, go check out some of these, you know, more 
really people that are, are genuine, you know, knowledgeable authorities, we'll say, on the issues of cybersecurity, cyber attacks and all that, and see what they're saying about this sort of thing. Because, you know, a lot of there's just there's too much hype. There's too much hype. I mean, that's part of the reason Sovereign Tech exists is because we get to break down, you know, the bullshit that these you know, a lot of these news sources and, you know, governments and people in general are, are feeding you. And, it, and it's crap. So the case against Russia is very, very weak. That is the, one of the main messages I also want to say to you. Uh, I mean, th- there's some points where, yeah, OK, that that very much looks like Russia. But then there's other points where it's like, OK, come on. Anybody could have been doing this. We don't have enough evidence, you know, to say that it was Russia, you know, and, 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 and so on. So do check out those links. I really recommend that. But again, take a little bit of heart. And, and I understand people, you know, will say, and, and I believe me, I, I empathize with this position that, you know, governments are going to, you know, they're, they're going to do whatever they want anyway. And maybe, but at least now we can, you know, the individuals who, you know, individual security researchers and then individuals, you know, who, who choose to agree with them, um, you know, can just just come out and say, look, the evidence is not good enough. You're wrong. You're lying. Like, I mean, and you can just you can you can prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt that there, you know, or beyond a shadow of a doubt, I guess that there's doubt. So I don't want to get into it. You know, I, we don't need to get into the details of all that. I think a lot of a lot of this is still getting weighed and worked out as far as what's going on with Russia, because it seems like, I mean, you know, they're being accused of 20 million hacks today. Um, and so what's the reality of the situation? Well, we're figuring that out. But one thing we do know is that for some of the cases brought up, including Vermont and others, is that we are not certain that it was Russia. We're certain that we're uncertain. That almost sounds like known unknowns. But that's a stupid statement as to where being certain that you're uncertain, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> so anyway, uh, enough of that. Let's, why don't we get into a little bit of fun subject and then we're going to get into a subject that is just batshit insane, but, uh, uh, unsurprisingly, I, I guess, well, no, it's, it's surprising. I, I, I can't believe uh, that it's a reality. So here we go. Uh, the Nintendo switch, Woo! there was an event. Uh, just, uh, just recently, well, like a couple, like yesterday, it was, like I said, it was in the middle of the night. It was crazy The the live stream was at like midnight on, you know, Eastern time. Um, and they showed off and gave the bulk of the details, uh, about the Nintendo switch. Now the Nintendo switch is, you know, this is the new console. This is the successor to the Wii U for Nintendo. Um, and it is a hybrid system, not well, I'll get into more of this. I mean, it, it's not necessarily the first of its kind, but after a fashion, I, I think it's it's safe to, to make that claim. Uh, but this is effectively a tablet with, you know, two controllers on the side that can slide off. And then it has a dock that can connect, you know, to a television at home. So you can you can pull it out of the dock and you can take it with you and you can play on the airplane. It has a nice little kickstand and all that. I mean, we, we got the demo video was back in December and we covered that. We talked all about that on, on Sovereign Tech then. Um, but now we have like a lot of the, you know, the actual uh, details uh, about it and people were able to play it and, uh, you know, touch it and, and do the whole thing. And, and a lot of people, you know, are pretty impressed, frankly, what I've seen of it. I'm pretty goddamn impressed myself and it's going to be coming out March 3rd, 12,017. <laughs> uh, and so this year, and it'll be $300, which kudos to Nintendo for always keeping that price low. Now they do that because they never really bake in any other kind of entertainment software as in, 
you know, like the PS2, the PS3, you know, a lot of those things had really high price tags, partly because they were implementing the latest optical technologies into it. Like the PS2 was for many people, their first DVD player, right? Uh, or the PS3 for many people, which was at 600 bucks when that first came out for many people was their first Blu-ray player and so on that, that tradition kind of continues today, except for with Nintendo. Nintendo has never, you know, they've always made sure that their consoles are gaming, gaming only. And that's why when the GameCube came out, that was only $250, uh, you know, in the Wii U similarly, I mean, you know, and so on, like they, they always keep this really low price and good for them because I mean, that, that keeps it kind of entry level, you know, particularly for, uh, for a console. Um, and the other interesting thing just on that vein is that there's no region locking on this. And that's important because first off is that that March 3rd date release date is true for, for the entire planet. Everywhere is getting it at on March 3rd. That's that's amazing. And no region locking, meaning that. So this is a problem that gamers used to have is that say you wanted to play, you know, some new hotness coming out in Japan and you're in North America, uh, you know, well, if you bought it, say you bought it on Amazon from Japan, which you could do. And you'd get it, your American, you know, Wii or your American GameCube or whatever would be region locked to where you couldn't play those games. Um, or, I mean, this is a big thing in the EU, you know, in, in Europe, like a lot of, they, they don't get a lot of games over there and, you know, they could buy them say from, you know, say it's in Britain, they could buy, you know, buy it from America and, but then they get it. And because their system's region locked though, they can't play the game. This will not be true, uh, for, for the Nintendo switch. And I mean, this is something that a lot of people, you know, like I remember particularly with, um, with the PSP. Uh, not the Vita, but the PSP, like that was a big, that was a big thing to do was to, to get rid of the region coding on all that. So you could get a lot of the great games that, cause even though the, you know, the Sony handhelds weren't popular in the States, they were popular in Japan. And so you'd get a ton of games there that would just never come here and you want to get your hands on them. And you could even, you know, a lot of them had multiple languages on them and you could change it to English. It's just that fucking region locking. So I think that's great that the switch does not have the region locking on it. I, I really think that that's, I, I, I mean, that. That's a selling point, in my opinion, for gamers anyway, uh, particularly considering some of the some of the games that are coming out. Now, I haven't heard of any that were like going to come out in Japan, but we're not going to come out in America. So maybe it, even, it might even be a moot point. Uh, but let's talk about some of the games that they did announce that will be coming out for it. And then I want to talk a little bit more about or talk a bit more about the system. Um, this is one I didn't see coming ultra street fighter two, the final challengers. And yes, this is a new version of, uh, of street fighter two. I'll take it, you know, and I guess it has new, new versions and outfits for, for Ken and Ryu and all that. Uh, I'm a huge street fighter fan. Um, you know, I love street fighter four was great. Street fighter five was great. I talk about street fighter three all the time. It's a pity that that game didn't get enough, uh, you know, enough push that it didn't get out to really other systems. It was mainly a dreamcast uh, exclusive at one point. And I think they did do like a street fighter anthology for PlayStation two and it was available there, but like everybody always forgets about street fighter three and it was a badass fucking game. Uh, but street fighter two, of course, I mean, that's the legend, you know, it's the, it's, for many people, the original. Uh, and so to have a new version of that, I think that's pretty cool. And it lets you switch between like the HD anniversary graphics to, as well as to the classic graphics. Uh, so that's, that's not a bad move at all. I think that's a fine game, you know, to come out with. And I think it's a launch title to talk about, uh, because, you know, obviously right now, uh, you know, nineties retro is everything to so many people. I mean, like this is, I mean, in the movie business, you know, you, you take your, take your medium and 
I mean, everything seems to be nineties retro. So that's a, that's a winning combination. I, I think that's great. And it's interesting too. I was thinking about it. Like, I mean, Nintendo seemingly for all of their systems as late, they've made sure that they're getting in some Capcom fighting action for a launch title. Uh, the Wii had it for, oh, what was, uh, it was the one with G-Force. It was straight Street Fighter versus, or, you know, the Gachaman that, that, that you could play that. Uh, but that was on there um, as well. I mean, when, when the Nintendo 3DS uh, first came out, that had, uh, that had Street Fighter 4 for it, the 3DS or the 3D version of it. So not, you know, not crazy for them to have Ultra Street Fighter 2. I'm actually looking forward to giving that a shot. Not that I'm going to be getting the system on launch day. I really, I can't imagine that. <laughs> not that I wouldn't want it. It's just that, I just think it's, it's, it's going to be too crazy, you know, just considering how hard it's been to get the, you know, the, the NES classic edition, how the fuck, and and that's going to be, I mean, that's a huge question that's in the air right now is, are they going to be able to even remotely, is Nintendo going to be able to remotely meet demand um, for the Nintendo switch? Some sites have already put it up for pre-order and those pre-orders, I mean, they like, they went through in, in a heartbeat. I mean, like, they, they, you know, they sold out in seconds just on the pre-orders. So we'll see, uh, other games. And this is one that we kind of predicted Mario Kart eight deluxe and the deluxe will be the, you know, the exclusive version, um, for, for the Nintendo switch. Uh, now Mario Kart eight was a Wii U title. Um, and I had said, I was like, look, they're, they're going to do this. They're, they're going to release, re-release a lot of games from the Wii U onto the switch because the Wii U just didn't sell, but there were great games that got made for, for the, you know, for the Wii U. So why not give them a second lease on life? And, and that's, that's definitely what's going to be happening here. I mean, they didn't announce every game. Obviously I don't think they announced every launch title, uh, but this, that's going to be easy pickings over the years is to just take these great Wii U titles that nobody really played because nobody bought a Wii U, or at least not a lot of people and just, you know, plug them right into the Nintendo switch, uh, legend of Zelda breath of the wild. Of course, this is the game that a lot of people are going, but wild for uh myself included uh that that's you know this is huge open world zelda game that's going to be nuts uh i i you know this is definitely the game i want to play on the system uh you know most most importantly you know or above all the rest uh and that'll be a launch title which there was questions of whether or not it would be a launch title but i think that's that's a winner to to have your system you know to have nintendo come out with the system with you know with the zelda launch title and that is you know, I, I don't think that's coming out for the Wii U. I think that's exclusive to the switch. That's just a winning combination. Uh, in my opinion, and you can say, yeah, GameCube had twilight princess. Look, GameCube wasn't, it's not like GameCube wasn't a success. I mean, it did very well for itself, especially in comparison to, you know, historically some other consoles, uh, but anyway, I, I think that's a, that's a great move. Uh, another one, fire emblem warriors. Now, if you don't know, and this, this might lead into something interesting here. Um, Fire Emblem Warriors. If you don't know the Fire Emblem series, this is a very popular Nintendo owned, uh, RPG. You know, it's, it's kind of like Nintendo's final fantasy really. And they are great games. Uh, maybe the first time people in North America ever experienced them or people outside of Japan, I should say, uh, you gaijin, <laughs> uh, maybe the first time you experienced it was on uh, super Mario brothers melee where, or super Mario brothers, super smash brothers melee, where you had the character of Marth. And, uh, there's another character there, but you know, those were from fire emblem, very powerful characters. Uh, I played them often. So these are really cool games. They've become popular with the DS and the 3DS and, you know, other systems. Now they finally, you know, crossed, uh, crossed over the pond. Um, 
but yeah, Fire Emblem Warriors, that's going to be a launch title. That should be interesting. And that should be interesting as well because, because of, of, of certain aspect of, and trust me, we're going to get into some interesting, you know, even more interesting tech news here in a minute. I just want to talk about the Nintendo Switch. Um, th- so there was supposed to be a Fire Emblem game coming out for mobile systems through the partnership that Nintendo has made with the company DNA. Now it's D-E-N-A, not just DNA. Uh, and you know, these partnerships have included, or so far have included super Mario run. And of course, Mitomo, which Mitomo I use daily. Um, and it seems, so there's supposed to be a fire emblem game. Now, what's interesting is, is that some of the news or, you know, some of the interpretation of what was said at this event, at, you know, at, at the switch event, uh, you know, just a couple days ago was that there's gonna, it sounds like there's going to be mobile apps where you can handle things like parental controls on the device. So, so that parents could actually control the, uh, or, you know, have certain controls over the, the Nintendo switch, uh, say that their kid is using, you know, remotely like that. They can just do that from their smartphone. And there's other features too, where it sounds like this is not just going to be a hybrid system in the, in the idea that, uh, you know, it can plug into a TV or it can be handheld and it works the same, but hybrid in that, it sounds like it's going to work heavily with other apps on mobile platforms. This is where things get a little sketchy for a few reasons. First off, you know, I don't think parents need to necessarily be controlling, you know, their, their kids devices. I think that sets kind of an ugly psychological precedent. Okay. Uh, but the other, the other thing that that's interesting about this is that like, I don't want a console that depends on me having an Android device or an iOS device or something like that, that feels a little antithetical. I, I mean, I'm not saying cool things can't be done and they can, as long as it's optional, just something feels weird about it. So, and the reason I bring that up is because again, we are supposed to have that fire emblem game for mobile. And I wonder if that is going to in any way interact, which would totally make sense for Nintendo because they've had their mobile, you know, they've had mobile games, of course, on their own platforms like game boy, they've had mobile games interact with their, you know, console class games for decades. I mean, that's, that's not anything new for them to do. Uh, so fire emblem coming out as a launch title, I can imagine there's going to be some kind of synergy with the mobile title, uh, your, as in, you know, Android or iOS mobile title of fire emblem, uh, as well. So we'll see how, how that ends up, uh, that ends up going. But that's one of the points I wanted to bring up was this, this interconnectivity with, or this integration with, uh, you know, Android or iOS that I find to be, well, we're going to have to see how it shapes up, but it sounds a little troublesome right at the gate. I mean, I could see the advantages and I could see where it could be cool. I'm just saying there's, I have a couple of little issues with it. Uh, other games coming out, of course, they announced a new Mario game, Super Mario Odyssey. That looks fantastic. Uh, Xenoblade Chronicles 2, which if you never played the original Xenoblade Chronicles on Wii, not on Wii U, but on Wii, what a doozy of an RPG. Just fantastic game. Uh, probably the last great title to have come out for the Wii, which remember the Wii is the best selling, uh, uh, console in history. I mean, just there's the facts folks deal with it. Sorry. You, you know, <laughs> Oh, but I love my X bone. I love the PS4. I, Hey, I like some of those too, but the Wii, you know, just, just took the world by storm. Uh, so very exciting to have Xenoblade Chronicles two come out. Uh, Skyrim is going to be coming out for it. That should be interesting though. I think it'll be kind of, uh, redundant perhaps when you consider what legend of Zelda breath of the wild is supposed to do. And there's going to be a Sonic game, which of course excites me because I'm a huge Sonic fan. Uh, you know, and I even like some of the more modern games like Sonic colors for the Wii. That was great. 
I mean, Sonic Colors is really good. I know there's been some duds lately, but Sonic Colors was not one of those duds. Uh, so some of these Nintendo exclusive Sonic games usually end up being the best in the, or some of the best in the series. Uh, so looking forward um, to that. Now, as far as other things, you know, now it's all right. There's one other game that I and I put a link in the show notes for this to check this out that I think is getting a little crazy. Now, you have to understand the controllers for the Nintendo Switch. Uh, it's called the Joy-Con terrible fucking name obviously joy controllers uh, i mean really really bad name uh, but there's a game there's a game that's going to come with it and i think it's called one two switch and it has so you know there's accelerometers in the joy cons and in, in the controllers for the uh you know for the nintendo switch and there's one game and you can see the trailer for it where you're literally milking a cow and when you have the Joy-Con in your hand and you're kind of squeezing on the Joy-Con, because the Joy-Cons, like both of them, again, it's a tablet, the Nintendo Switch, it's this tablet, and then it has these, um, you know, then it has a controller on each side, and they can actually make up two controllers, or they can kind of combine to become one pro controller. Uh, it sounds confusing, but it's actually brilliant when you look at it. But, the you know, each Joy-Con has... Um, so, so understand, you know, with the Nintendo switch, you can go and play, you can play two players with anybody, you know, with one system, like you're always ready to go to play two players because it comes with two joy cons. So anyway, on each joy con, there are, uh, there's, there's hat buttons, you know, buttons at the top of it. And so you can kind of squeeze in on that. Right. And you're, you're milking a cow and you're watching the trailer of these people doing it. And you already know the picture I'm painting. It looks like they're jerking off. <laughs> and I saw it and I was like, Oh, Nintendo, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, you know, and I'm not going to say all oh, those poor Japanese are so innocent. No, they are not. Uh, but that, maybe they do know what they're doing. Maybe we're going to get some really interesting homebrew games with this shit. I don't know. <laughs> that looks so bad. <laughs> Just seeing them with this mini game, you know, milking a cow. And it's like, oh, man, uh, reminded me of that movie with the Hayden Christensen. Great movie, Virgin Territory, where the. the the gals are the milkmaids are milking the milking the cows and they spurt it all over the guy's faces. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I love that movie. Uh, um, so yeah, I, I thought that was, so th I mean, the gaming lineup looks good. So, you know, everything's looking good on that. The hardware looks, you know, looks pretty good. Um, I'm again, the, how they're going to work with mobile devices is a, is a big question. Um, it is going to have 32 gig of internal memory. Uh, I didn't, you know, here's the one thing that I didn't see. I didn't see, was there anything about cartridges? Did anybody talk about that? Maybe I missed it that everything was going through the through the digital store, but I I, I didn't see that uh, they are going to allow for micro SD cards to to be put into, and that was kind of the thing was that you know Nintendo was going to be going back to the cartridge. I I think it is cartridge. I just somehow I missed the detail on that. Um, but battery life, this is a pretty important thing, of course, when it's not docked. Uh, the Nintendo Switch, the battery life, it's supposedly going to be anywhere between three hours to about seven hours, uh, and and it charges through USB-C, which that's really nice. That means if you have a USB-C adapter, you can be charging this thing just about anywhere, just like you charge your phone. Uh, granted, that's kind of a newer standard for phones, uh, but there it is. So, and then you have the Switch Pro controller, of course, not just the Joy-Cons. I kind of mentioned that. There's a controller where you can, it looks more like an adapter that you can put the uh, the Joy-Cons into, and then it creates, you know, a more traditional controller like you'd imagine from an Xbox um, or something like that. Uh, so I... Yeah. Oh, the, and then the last bit, um, 
on, there's going to be some degree of online services. And this is also part of that, you know, where it's going to interact with, you know, mobile platforms like Android or iOS, uh, but there's going to be online services where you can download games and supposedly you can get games for free. It's not totally clear. Like they said that there's going to be titles for the super Nintendo that you can get free. Here's where it's like, I don't know if you can just download them and have them forever within a certain month, or if you can only play them for a month, how that's exactly going to work. We don't know, but they're doing very similar to PlayStation live games with gold for Xbox and all that, which I mean, Hey, why not? You know, that's, that's what everybody's doing. You might as well, you know, jump in on the, on the fray. Uh, so that's the Nintendo switch. Everything I saw was very hopeful. And I have a bunch of links in the show notes if you want to dig deeper uh, from various sources, including uh, nintendolife.com, which is one that I, I actually read from uh, regularly. Uh, a lot, lot to look into there, but everything going on with it, I think, looks great. And the big deal for me is that now I said this a long while back, a few years ago on Cybertech. I said, mobile gaming is really going to be the thing because in many ways it sort of already was. I mean, especially at the time, you know, the Nintendo 3DS is up until perhaps up until the Switch comes out is the greatest console in the world today. And you will not, from hardcore gamers, you won't find much argument about that outside of the PC, of course, outside of, you know, the, the computer. Um, and so I think what, what's really interesting here is that this is kind of the dream come true, sort of what I was imagining coming true, where this is effectively a tablet with controllers, with really great controllers, obviously, because Nintendo's good at doing controllers. Nintendo's good at everything they do. Uh, and yeah, here it is. I mean, th this is, you know, this is that mobile gaming promise finally coming true. Now, it's going to be interesting what other apps and what other things are going to be possible on this tablet, because it is the tablet format, it can take advantage of touchscreen, you know, touchscreen keyboard and a lot of different things um, that, you know, I, I think we're just scratching the surface of what the system's going to be able to do. Uh, but it's funny, a lot of people are saying that nobody's going to, or I, I've seen some commentators, I guess I should say, say that, look, nobody's going to actually use this thing in a mobile fashion. Like, are you actually going to carry that around with you? I think absolutely people are going to carry that around with them. I mean, the Nintendo 3DS is proof of that. And regardless of, you know, even if this is a little bit larger, yeah, I think it's going to be a thing. Uh, so this is really interesting stuff. Uh, definitely a departure from what the rest of the gaming industry is doing. And I'm glad uh, to see it. And the details that have come out are phenomenal. I, I, I didn't hear really one piece of bad news other than just that concern over the synergy with mobile platforms. Um, I'm excited for it. Can't wait. March 3rd. I mean, well, whenever I get around to it, Nintendo, take my money, you know, maybe I'll put it on the, uh, on the, the wish list for sovereign tech at wishlist.zog.ninja. Uh, and it had some people actually get some things from that, uh, this week that helped out the studio. Thank you so much uh, for that. Again, that's wishlist.zog.ninja. All right. Um, Enough of the Nintendo Switch. Why don't we get into, let's, let's break down, this is just the, the craziest little theory slash story that I've heard in, really in the past couple weeks, even though it's been talked about a bit uh, before. So, uh, so let's get to it. All right, so I want to set this up with another story, and this story actually got sent in to me from a, just a phenomenal Cybertech listener. Thank you so much. Uh, and this is actually from the Times of Israel. Woo! I know you didn't see that coming, uh, <laughs> but it's Facebook incitement bill passes first reading legislation will give court authority to force social media giants to block 
content deemed to endanger security. And this is from January 3rd, uh, 2017. Uh, and I'll, I'll read a little bit here. The so-called Facebook bill, which would allow the state, and of course we're talking about Israel, to seek court orders to force the social media giant to remove certain content based on police recommendations, again, based on police recommendations, recommendations passed its first reading in the Knesset on Tuesday morning. That's the, their governing body. Uh, the bill was proposed by public security minister, uh, Gilad Ardan. And well, anyway, two weeks after the, the two met, you don't need to hear me saying a bunch of silly Jewish names. <laughs> uh, and as someone who had one, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I can talk, <laughs> uh, two weeks after the two met with Facebook officials in the Knesset, the, the government says the bill will only be invoked in cases of suspected, uh, incitement where there is a real possibility that the material in question, uh, endangers the public or national security. Now you can read on more. It's not that long of an article. Okay. But it's in the show notes for episode 208. All right. But they break this down and I mean, it's not like. It needs to necessarily be, you know, in the from the the highest halls of government that someone has to talk to Facebook. Pretty much the police can call this shot. Now, why this is important is because this is something. Well, you're, we're going to find out more about why it's important when we go into our next story. OK, but it really ends up. I mean, this is vindication for the Golden Stallion here. OK, this is vindication for me because this is what I said is that people think, oh, video recording and oh, yeah, yeah. You know, we'll, we'll record the cops and we can have those videos up and everything and, and nothing's going to stop us because we're going to get it out there. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, no, Facebook absolutely will. This is the start. And Facebook is, is, you know, now if you read more in the article, Facebook does respond and says that, well, we got to make sure that it, it complies with our, you know, or that it's against Facebook's guidelines, what say a government uh, agent is asking us to take down, but we will do it. We will play ball with governments. What a surprise. Okay. This is the thing is that Facebook live. Here's my point is that a lot of people think, oh, it's this wonderful tool for showing off, you know, activism, say for, you know, what the, the, the famous activism of cop blocking and all this, your videos aren't going to last Jack, you know, or if you're in some kind of revolutionary situation, uh, you know, I, and I, I said this before as well, that the things that were going on in Egypt or even in Turkey or, you know, in other parts of the world, okay. Where the big claim was, is that, oh yeah, Facebook and Twitter have, uh, you know, had a, a huge part to play in toppling these regimes and all this stuff that will no longer be a reality. That will no longer be a part of this. Okay. Because the government is now effectively in not just America, but around the world it is starting to show up where governments are in control of this stuff. But now how about, how about I, we, we double down on this. Okay. Because what if Facebook itself became the government? Ooh, what is the golden stallion saying to you? Let's read a little bit about this. Okay. In this story that I'm about to, to read, is actually from just about the same date, uh, a couple days later from January 5th, 2017. And it is, it's 2017 HE for all those paying attention. Mark Zuckerberg is sure acting like someone who might run for president. And this is from Wired. Uh, read a little bit here. Mark Zuckerberg. Did you catch that headline? Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg is acting like somebody that wants to run for president. Mark Zuckerberg hasn't said he wants to be president, but if someone were to run for office, that someone might want to line up a few things to prepare for the possibility. A few things that Facebook's CEO has done. Uncanny, right? To be clear, setting the table doesn't mean Zuckerberg plans to sink his teeth into electoral politics, but he's made some moves in the past few days that have restarted the speculation. On Tuesday, in his annual and annually publicized New Year's resolution announcement, 
Zuckerberg vowed to travel to 30 U.S. states to ensure he will have visited and met people from all 50 by the end of 2017. Campaigning much? A week earlier on Christmas Day, Zuckerberg said in, in a Facebook comment that though he once went through a period where he questioned, quote unquote, questioned religious matters, he broke through the, his skepticism, skepticism and now believes religion to be, quote, very important, end quote. Woo. Given that it's accepted wisdom in American politics that someone who is not religious can never be elected president of the United States, could this be hashtag positioning? Now, let's be serious. Zuckerberg probably isn't going to run for president. Golden Stallion breaking in. Uh, are you so sure? Read a little more. Sure, he'll be older than 35 by the next uh, by the time the next election rolls around 2020. Uh, the cons- the uh, constitutionally mandated minimum age to hold office for those of you not paying attention to history class. But if he if he did, he has made sure he could still have control over Facebook while holding public office. In June, during Facebook's annual meeting, company shareholders voted to approve a restructuring of Facebook stock that would ensure Zuckerberg keeps his majority ownership, even if the company issues more shares shares. And of course, this is what, like a C round, right? Reading on Zuckerberg pushed his, this plan to enable him to give away uh, much of his vast wealth via his and his wife's philanthropic organization, the Chan Zuckerberg initiative while still, but doesn't that sound like a military program? but whatever (laughs) reading on while still retaining control of the company he co-founded. Of course, if Zuckerberg dies, gets fired or leaves the company on his own, he'll still lose control. But buried in the public filing is one big exception, one that Zuckerberg reportedly fought hard for. He can take a leave of absence from from Facebook and still retain voting control of the company if he goes to work for the government. More specifically, as long as Zuckerberg owns enough of Facebook, 30% or more of his shares he owned at the time of signing the stock restructuring agreement, he can serve in government. And if he owns less than 30%, uh, he just needs board approval. If he doesn't get that, he can still serve in public office if the government position has a two-year term limit. Uh, A Facebook representative confirmed this is how the agreement works. The idea of Zuckerberg running for office seems plausible in many ways. As the CEO of a very large and powerful technology company, Zuckerberg is well-practiced in the art of PR, a necessary skill for any politician, and Zuckerberg already promotes many of Facebook's projects, as well as his own, as taking on issues of public interest, everything from the uh, immigration reform lobbying group he backs to Facebook's ambitious plan to connect the whole world using new wireless antennas, lasers, and satellites. Of course, uh, you know, Sovereign Tech listeners know that's Project Titan. We've talked about that before. Um, Even Zuckerberg's philanthropic organization, usually a pastime for retired billionaires and ex-presidents, seeks to cure, prevent, or at least manage all disease within the lifetime of today's children. As Facebook CEO, Zuckerberg isn't just the most recognizable representative of the company. He truly is behind every decision the company makes, including when it grapples with very public fiascos, like the ongoing fake news crisis and allegations of conservative bias on the platform. Oh, and Facebook itself is no stranger to using its influence and dollars to stay close to the government. Yes, Mark Zuckerberg probably isn't going to run for president, and maybe he shouldn't. If he did, that would mean the person running for the leader of the free world free world would also control the platform where 44% of American adults now get their news, a platform that has the potential to decisively influence the electorate's views of the candidates. If he won, the fundamental conflict of interest would become even more pronounced. Media 
media barons have occupied high office before, but a social media baron as president would be an unprecedented experiment in politics and the power to control perceptions. Now, this is not a new idea. I also put links in the show notes for from Forbes, where in April of of, of um, for April of 12,016. Did I say 20,016 earlier? I'm sorry. Uh, getting used to this new human era calendar, uh, you know, from April of 12,016. And also, uh, there was another one from, uh, October of 12,016 that you're going to want to look into both of them from Forbes. And they lay out a lot more information perhaps on is Zuckerberg actually is big Zuck going to, you know, going to go for the high chair, uh, as it were. In fact, I like calling it the high chair because it sounds like something for babies, because in my opinion, that's what government is. Um, now, and, and not in a good way either. <laughs> I'm not saying babies need government. They need quite the opposite. So I want to break this down. I want to talk about this because you know what? I think this is a, this is so highly likely. And in many ways one could say, and normally we don't like to talk about politics and that's why I'm shocked that I'm even, you know, kind of getting into this, but this is such an ugly, I mean, this isn't just corporatism. Like this is, this is nightmarish corporatism. I don't know what word to even fucking use for it to where the guy that is also the head of one of the most of one of the tech giants, and there's only four or five, you know, one of the tech giants in America is also the fucking president of America. How more blatant of a corporatism can you get? And when you have, you know, after this recent election, the fact that Trump could become president, in my opinion, anybody can become president now. Really, I think they can. Now, there's a lot to break down on this. So could I see Mark Zuckerberg doing a 2020 run? Absolutely. Yes, I could see that. I agree that a lot of his comments, especially backing off, uh, you know, about religion and all that is very interesting. I think it's very interesting. And this is something that this story didn't even get. None of the stories that I have linked to uh, really got into that. I, you know, that I want to mention. And that is one of the books that Zuckerberg talked about, uh, like he does like a book of the month kind of thing. One of the ones he did is he started reading the culture series from E&M banks. One of my favorite, uh, uh, you know, science fiction sagas, because it's really, I mean, not, it's not the only, but as far as like mainstream, uh, uh, acceptance and knowledge of it is sort of the only like anarchist science fiction works out there. I mean, that are really heavy. I know there's dispossessed. I believe me, I know about them. I'm talking about a big saga and he's reading the first one. Now what's interesting about that is that is all about a kind of a post scarcity humanity in those books. And so, you know, what, like what's, what's with him wanting to get everybody on board reading that? Is he going to be pushing UBI universal basic income? Is that going to be one of Zuck's big platforms? Is he going to back it himself, you know, with his own little, uh, you know, his little Chan Zuckerberg initiative. Hmm. No, I don't think this idea of Zuckerberg running for president is crazy talk at all. I don't think it's unlikely at all. I think that this is, this is some journalists saying, Oh, wait a second. <laughs> I think they're seeing things, you know, seeing, seeing realities, you know, that that could be coming down the pike. And I mean, it really changes. It changes so much of, I guess really like the perception of a lot of Zuckerberg's actions in the past few years. Um, there's, you know, the, like the big sell-off that he did of, uh, you know, creating this, this, uh, you know, charitable, giving away so much to charity, creating the charitable initiative and all this different stuff. And everybody's like, Oh, Oh, bravo. This is what all billionaires should do. Blah, blah, blah. When really all of that could have been a part of a, a lead in to this, again, to the stock restructuring that will effectively allow Zuckerberg to become president or if anything, become a Senator which could be just as bad 
Because that's still that corporatism run amok, where it's that unholy alliance between corporations, you know, between business and government, where businesses are using the government, using the force of the gun, and, you know, and vice versa. I mean, Facebook is the greatest spy network out there. I mean, it is just, it, you know, it's dragging everybody. It's grabbing all the information, whatever. And I mean, now you're going to literally, like, there will be no check and balance. How can you say Zuck's the president, right? And, oh, we got to go find this, you know, you know, we, we need to, the, the intelligence agencies need to do this, 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 this. I mean, then he can just do executive orders that Facebook's not going to fight them because the owner of fucking Facebook is the president. <laughs> and honestly, like there's some other things too. So, so here's some other predictions on, on my part with a lot of this. I, and I, I have so much I could say about this. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you something, you know, we we're talking earlier about how, you know, it seems like Trump and, and Russia are all buddy, buddy. Right. And that it would have been the other way around where, you know, and some people see this as a good thing because they're like, well, whew, at least we avoided world war three because God damn it, you know, Hillary would have went to war with Russia and it would be all over. There'd be nukes, you know, flying everywhere, blah, blah, blah. You know, so thankfully Trump's at least in for that, even though I, you know, even people that say they don't like Trump, they're like, oh, well, at least he stopped world war three. I disagree with you. I think that Trump has been making, you know, has been pulling all kinds of schemes to incite the Chinese government. And I think that if there is going to be a world war three, if there is going to be a war, you know, during the Trump presidency, it's going to be between America and China. And he is very blatant about that, far more blatant about his, his disposition against China. And that's using a very light word, uh, than Hillary, in my opinion, ever was about Russia. Now, what's interesting about that is say there is this tension, if you know, maybe not even a war, but just serious tension between the Chinese government and the U.S. government, you know, during a Trump presidency come 2020. You know, Zuckerberg has a tremendous relationship with the Chinese government. And, you know, I could see him, you know, here are the kind of the winning platforms that he could run on. He could push UBI and he could come out with some crazy statistics you know, as far as saying like, because he could base it all on Facebook statistics that he's collected, uh, you know, and it's not even like, like he could just do it as the company. And, you know, I mean, you could say, well, the government could get access to those statistics too. Yeah. But they have to ask Facebook first. He doesn't have to ask Facebook first. He is Facebook. So he could use all of that data from Facebook to really like, I mean, he could so hyper hone down on what people want, uh, you know, or at least what, what is perceived via algorithm, what people want. As well as, uh, you know, he could have lots of data on, I mean, it just, it, I can't even imagine the campaign because the amount of information that he could hammer any, you know, any political opponent with would be mind boggling. And so I think he, he's, he'll, he could push UBI. He could push smoothing over tension, uh, tensions with, um, you know, with, uh, with China, which again, maybe that won't come to be. I'm just guessing I'm predicting here a bit. Uh, but he could do that. And I mean, those two things alone might be enough, you know, really to, to, to put that guy over the edge. Now, are people going to be like, oh, no, 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 he can't, he, you know, we don't, we don't want this, this business person, you know, run, that, that owns this, 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 we don't, you know, and has all these conflicts of interest. We don't want him running the country, but that didn't stop Trump. So I see this as really super likely that Zuckerberg could be running for, you know, for president. Um, and there's, a, you know, there's other aspects 
to this as well. Uh, but I want to break into another story, which is this one. There's a bit of back and forth on this. Okay. But you know, I, I, I want this just really kind of goes to, I think it adds on to the extreme dangers. I mean, it, it's dangerous to have anybody in charge, you know, or, you know, to have everybody, anybody with the monopoly, you know, uh, the monopoly on the use of violence, right. And the use of force, i.e. government. Okay. It's dangerous to have that any way you, you know, any way you slice it. Um, but this makes it a lot worse. And here is, this is an interesting story and we're and this is all getting tied up. This, we're actually kind of moving into hack sec. I'm not going to take a break, uh, you know, for it. We'll just, this is the hack sec story this week. And this is another one where the golden stallion got a bunch of vindication on things I've been saying about Facebook for a long, long time. Um, now, but we've got to break this down paid. I, because this is going to have to do with, this has to do with WhatsApp. Understand. I also read the blog post from open whisper systems. I read it the instant it came out because I get notifications whenever open whisper systems tweets. Okay. So I know instantly, you know, when they're changing something up. All right. Now, um, what I want you to know, hold on, let me read this, you know, read some from the guardian here, and then we will break down what open whisper systems who are the creators of signal, which WhatsApp owned by Facebook uses the signal protocol to do its end to end encryption. That's on by default, which kudos, um, you know, but, but I'll, I'll break into that. So now first thing to, you know, to mention, and I mean, and so many people emailed me with the story or messaged me or tweeted at me saying, Hey, did you check this out? I mean, so many people. So there's no way I wasn't not going to talk, you know, that I wasn't going to talk about it. Um, and now when, when the story first came out, all right. And this would have been on the 13th. This was just yesterday. Um, January 13th. It, it originally, the headline was WhatsApp back door allows snooping on encrypted messages. Now what it actually was updated to is, and that's as of this morning on the 14th, January 14th, WhatsApp vulnerability allows snooping on encrypted messages. They changed it. Now understand that a lot of what open whisper systems was responding to. Okay. Of, Cause they responded to the guardian article saying, what are you talking about? There's no backdoors in, in signal. Okay. They were, you know, understand Open Whisper Systems was responding to the comment that it was a back door. All right. We'll break into that a bit, but let me read some of the story here uh, from the, from the guardian. And again, they changed, they said, no, it's not a back door. So WhatsApp vulnerability allows snooping on encrypted messages uh, from uh, Manisha Ganguly, uh, exclusive privacy campaign campaigners criticize WhatsApp vulnerability as a quote, huge threat to freedom of speech end quote, and warn it could be exploited by government agencies. Let's read a bit here, a security vulnerability that could be used to allow Facebook and others to intercept and read encrypted messages has been found with in its WhatsApp messaging service. Facebook claims that no one, no one can intercept WhatsApp messages, not even the company and its staff ensuring privacy for its billion plus users. But new research shows that the company could in fact read messages due to the way WhatsApp has implemented its end to end encryption protocol. Privacy campaigners said the vulnerability is a quote, huge threat to freedom of speech end quote, and warned it could be used yeah, by government agencies, blah, blah, blah. WhatsApp has made privacy and security a primary selling point has become, and has become a go-to communications tool of activists, dissidents, and diplomats. Stallion breaking in really quickly. Um, I think that is largely stopped uh, because there are already cases where dissidents or terrorists, uh, you know, however you want to use those terms, have already been caught like a bombing plot had effectively been caught. I believe it was in Belgium. If I remember a couple, you know, right. Not long after this whole end to end encryption thing was put in, uh, and they were caught via WhatsApp data that is known. We covered that story, um, on sovereign tech. That is enough to say 
I mean, that's how I've known ever since, even though, yes, it is the rock solid and the signal protocol is rock solid. Okay. The protocol itself can be rock solid while it can still be implemented imperfectly or intentionally to allow for, you know, someone to see what's going on. Right. Uh, and so that, that's why I said, it's like, look, I know the signal protocol is rock solid. I know it's great, but that doesn't mean that WhatsApp isn't, or, you know, Facebook because WhatsApp is owned by Facebook. And it was at that time as well, you know, that they could, they could bake something in to where they can still see what you're messaging, you know, kind of back and forth, or at least get more data than if you were just using the raw signal app that uses the signal protocol, uh, would allow for Okay, so let's read on. Um, WhatsApp's end-to-end encryption relies on the generation of unique security keys using the acclaimed Signal protocol developed by Open Whisper Systems that are traded and verified between users to guarantee communications are secure and cannot be intercepted by a middleman. However, WhatsApp has the ability to force the generation of new encryption keys for offline users, unbeknown to the sender and recipient of the messages, and to make the sender re-encrypt messages with new keys and send them again for any messages that have not been marked as delivered. The recipient is not made aware of this change in encryption while the sender is only notified if they have opted into encryption warnings in settings and only after the messages have been resent. Uh, this re-encryption and rebroadcasting effectively allows WhatsApp to intercept and read users' messages. The security loophole was uh, discovered by Tobias Bolter, a cryptographer and a cryptography and security researcher at the University of California, Berkeley. He told The Guardian, quote, if WhatsApp is asked by a government agency to disclose its messaging records, it can effectively grant access due to the change in keys, end quote. The vulnerability is not inherent to the Signal protocol. Open Whisper Systems messaging app Signal, the app used and recommended by whistleblower Edward Snowden, does not suffer from the same vulnerability. If a recipient changes the security key while offline, for instance, a sent message will fail to be delivered and the sender will be notified of the change in security keys without automatically resending uh, the message. WhatsApp's implementation automatically resends an, an undelivered message with a new key without warning the user in advance or giving them the ability to prevent it. Bolter reported that the vulnerability to Facebook in April 2016, but was told that Facebook was aware of the issue, that it was expected behavior, quote unquote, and wasn't being actively worked on. Uh, the Guardian has verified the loophole still exists. Now, I, I, I'm going to skip ahead a bit here. We don't need to read the whole thing, but WhatsApp did uh, did respond you know, to, to the comments said WhatsApp later issued uh, a statement saying, quote, WhatsApp does not give governments a backdoor into its systems and would fight any government request to create a backdoor and quote, Ooh, let's hold on because what if Facebook is the government, right? So then who exactly are you going to fight with? Who are you going to argue with <laughs> yourself? <laughs> and, and how are you even going to know? I mean, Oh, oh. This whole potential for, I mean, and that's, that we're, I want to touch on more on the WhatsApp thing too, but this whole potential for Zuckerberg becoming president is so goddamn creepy, but I can see where he could do very, he could lay out some very attractive ideas, uh, you know, to, to people that, that they're going to think that this is going to be the new thing. But uh, you know, I hate to tell you folks, old boss, same as the new boss or new boss, same as the old boss. So anyway, this whole article was updated, um, you know, with that comment that WhatsApp's like, oh, no, we're, we're not going to work with governments, blah, blah, blah. Now, Open Whisper Systems themselves did an entire blog post 
um, where they were saying, look, the Guardian is just dead wrong um, and saying that WhatsApp end-to-end encryption you know, does not contain a backdoor. I'm going to read just a little bit here. All the links are in the show notes if you want to look into it more deeply yourself. Um, WhatsApp's encryption uses, uh, uses the Signal protocol as detailed in their technical white paper. In systems that deploy Signal protocol, each client is cryptographically identified by a key pair composed of a public key and a private key. The public key is advertised publicly through the server, while the private key remains private on the user's device. Now, this is what the Guardian or, you know, what the researcher was claiming is that WhatsApp will automatically change those keys. And when it changes those keys without letting anybody know, it can see what was being sent. Um, reading on, this identity key pair, key pair is bound into the encrypted channel that's established between two parties when they exchange messages and is exposed through the safety number or security code in WhatsApp that participants can check to verify the privacy of their communication. Now, this is something where if you're communicating with somebody on WhatsApp or, or Signal, like you can, there, there's a setting where you can look and say, okay, are you seeing the same number I am? Yes, you are. Okay, then we're, we're, we're clear. We're, you know, we're connected. Um, so, uh, let's, let's read on here a bit more. Most end to end encryption systems have something that resemble this type of verification because otherwise an attacker who compri- or compromise the server could lie about a user's public key and instead advertise a key, which the attacker knows the corresponding private key for. This is called a man in the middle attack or MITM and is endemic to public key cryptography, not just WhatsApp. So now they kind of break down into their defense of what happened. One fact of life in the real world cryptography is that these keys will change under normal circumstances. Every time someone gets a new device or even just reinstalls the app, their identity key pair will change. Stanley breaking in. Yes, this is exactly what happens. That's totally normal. Nothing so odd there. Reading on. This is something any public key cryptography system has to deal with, blah, blah, blah. Uh, WhatsApp gives users the option to be notified when these changes occur. While it is likely that not every WhatsApp user verifies safety numbers or safety number changes, the WhatsApp client has been carefully designed so that the WhatsApp server has no knowledge of whether users have been have enabled the change notifications or whether users have verified safety numbers. WhatsApp could try to man in the middle a conversation, just like with any encrypted communication system, but they would risk getting caught by the users uh, who verify keys. So understand that exactly what the security researcher that the Guardian talked to was saying, you know, was was possible is possible. Like, I mean, like that, that, that can absolutely be done to where WhatsApp could effectively see what is going to happen? Um, now, the thing is, is that they could, you know, the theory goes, according to Open Whisper Systems, is they can get caught in the act, uh, you know, when, when they do that. I'm going to read a little bit more from the story. Under normal circumstances, when communicating with a contact who has recently changed devices or reinstalled WhatsApp, it might be possible to send a message before the sending client discovers that the receiving client has new keys. The recipient's device immediately responds and asks the sender to re-encrypt the message with the recipient's new identity key pair. The sender displays the quote unquote safety number has changed notification, re-encrypts the message and delivers it. The WhatsApp clients have been carefully designed so that they will not re-encrypt messages that have already been delivered. Once the sending client displays a double check mark, it can no longer be asked to resend that message. This prevents anyone who compromises the server from being able to selectively target previously delivered messages for re-encryption. The fact that WhatsApp handles key key changes is not a backdoor. It is how cryptography works. Any attempt to intercept messages in transmit by the server is detected by the sender, just like with Signal, PGP, or any other end-to-end encryption communication system. The only question it might be reasonable to ask is whether the safety number change notifications should be blocking or non-blocking. In other words, when a contact's key changes, should WhatsApp require the user to manually verify 
verify the new key before continuing? Or should WhatsApp display an advisory notification and continue without blocking the user? Okay, so here's the issue, okay, is that this is effectively possible through WhatsApp. Now, Signal, when you're using just the raw Signal app, they're not logging any of the shit. They're not doing, you know, anything of the sort. That None of the stuff is getting held, okay? And, every, you know, everything's being, you know, all of that's being done right. And here's the problem. I get Open Whisper Systems, they're really just trying to say, look, there's not a problem with the Signal protocol. Okay, the Signal protocol, that encryption is rock solid. All right, but they're really kind of, in my opinion... And maybe I'm wrong about this and you can email me if you think I am. But in my opinion, they're effectively saying, nah, well, <laughs> you know, yeah, this is possible. But, um, you know, WhatsApp is doing their level best, you know, to let people know when this sort of thing's happening. But again, you are trusting WhatsApp to give you those notifications, all these notifications you are having to turn on. While great that encryption is turned on automatically, a lot of these settings to get notifications and all this become problematic because, Who's turning those on? It's tyranny the default. If it's not automatically on, most people don't even use it, and they sure as hell don't go looking into the settings. This is not something I would trust my life on. As to where signal, it's about one of the it's one of the very few things where if I had to send a life or death communication, I would. And you're gonna hand over potentially, you know, people are going to hand over this ability, you know, this much power and give that to the future president of the United States if, say, Mark Zuckerberg runs for U.S., you know, for U.S. president. Holy shit. We'll be back with more. Woo. All right. Man, <laughs> so much to get into with that. But I, I think you're looking at Facebook is such a scary company. But I want to tell you about a company that isn't scary at all. Not not in the slightest. And they are somebody that everything, you know, they, they're big on the offline thing. And you know who they are? Woo. It's Roberts and Roberts Brokerage. Roberts and Roberts brokerage. This is, this is, if you want to get your hands on some precious metals. Okay. And I mean, get your hands really on them and maybe you want to do it with talk about great cryptography, something that's rock solid out there. How about some Bitcoin buy it with Bitcoin? I want you to go to Roberts and Roberts brokerage. They are just one of the best companies out there. Top notch. They will hook you up. Go to gold.zog.ninja. That's the website gold.zog.ninja. That'll take you there. You can let them know the golden sailing center. They're going to know who you're talking about because they're tech geeks there too. They listen to the show. They know the deal. You want to get on top of this. You want to be getting your gold and silver. You want to be diversifying and protecting your wealth and value with gold and silver. You want to be doing that through Roberts and Roberts brokerage. That's gold.zog.ninja. And uh, let's get back to some sovereign tech. Internet of targets. Ooh, it is time for internet of targets where baby, we talk about all those internet of things, things. <laughs> and there's so many to talk about because you know, what does the S stand for in Internet of Things? Security. But shit, there's not an S in there in, a, in Internet, in, in IoT. God damn it. <laughs> there is an Internet of Things. I always have to correct myself on that. Uh, but yeah, this is where we talk about IoT, all the crazy IoT stories that happen. And there was a, in fact, I hinted at it in episode 207 of Sovereign Tech last week. Uh, there was kind of a crazy story that might not seem like a big deal, but I want to lay out a certain potentiality when we get into it. What this has to do is with a young girl, literally a six-year-old girl in Texas who, wow, uh, <laughs> 
Her family has an Amazon Echo, and something very, very interesting happened uh, when you put those two together. And, uh, well, why don't we just go to the the clip? This is actually from uh, Good Morning America. Woo, I'm playing Good Morning America on Sovereign Tech. Who would have ever thought that? Here, let's listen in. Michael family, they got an unexpected Christmas gift, not from Santa, but thanks to their adorable six-year-old daughter, Brooke, who asked for some some treats from their new Amazon Echo, a voice-activated device that makes uh, ordering easy and Amazon delivered. They got a $160 dollhouse and, you know, four pounds of cookies that they weren't expecting. And the family is joining us. Please welcome the Knightsville family from Dallas, Texas, Megan, Michael, Brooke, and your big brothers. Are you sure you're not a J. Crew family? Did we get you out of casting or something? Like, this is too perfect, too perfect. Thank uh, you. Megan, what was it like when you the delivery showed up and you're thinking, uh, we didn't order this? What was the reaction from the family? With the items that they were, all fingers were pointing to her with the dollhouse and cookies. <laughs> we didn't think it was these guys. You guys didn't want a doll? It wasn't you guys? So you knew you were off the hook right, uh, right off the bat. You're like, yeah. shoot, <laughs> this time it's not us. Okay, Miss Brooks. So what did you tell Alexa? I told Alexa to order me a dollhouse and some cookies. You did? What made you, you just wanted that dollhouse and some cookies and you decided that you just asked Alexa? Yes. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense like that. Okay, Dad, Michael, when you, when you heard about this. I was just a little bit surprised, but then, you know, we, um, we approached Brooke about it and, and she fessed up and... Uh, when we got it, we said, okay, well, we started eating the cookies, of course, but uh, <laughs> try to figure out what we're going to do with the dollhouse. Now, I, I hear that you two started whispering to one another because you didn't want Brooke or the kids to overhear because they thought maybe they'd, they'd order something again. I said, we need to say Alexa very quietly. She's hearing everything right now. No one else order anything until we figure out what's going on. Oh, uh, yeah. But so what have you done so this doesn't happen again? And for your advice to other families that are tuning in this morning. I put the control, the parental controls on it took literally five seconds to do it and um there's a special code which hopefully they won't figure out what that is you have to say before you uh, okay. before you order all right you don't have any pets do you many okay many but, pets okay not the pets names because that's usually no, the, that's usually it's the, not the so pets not, names okay, just a little thank you yeah just it's what we do here at gma <laughs> and help you out like that but it was very sweet because you could have you could have blown up you could have like you know sent it back and tell everybody what you did as a family and who decided to do what you did with the dollhouse we donated it to medical city children's hospital isn't that wonderful oh that's so sweet and guys you were, you were in on that you said this is what we should do should help some other kids yes ma'am yeah oh yes ma'am he is from the south i love that uh okay how about them cowboys i know yes. that you're all from Woo! Thank you very much um, again, no, and, you. and thank you for the little lesson here and, and telling parents on what they should do so this doesn't happen to them, but thank you for handling it as well as you have. Thank All right. you. All thank right, you. take care. Right. Have a good week. Woo, yay, woo. Um, okay, so, <laughs> so the reality of the situation here is that an Amazon Echo, okay, so what happened if you didn't get it? What happened is, is this young girl, the six-year-old girl in Texas, she, in, she accidentally ordered like four pounds of cookies, um, and, and a dollhouse. Okay. Ended up spending like $170, obviously, you know, depending on one's perspective, not a lot of money though. Um, 
And now here's the thing with the Amazon Echo. I don't own one, but I have some understanding of how these things operate. And that special code that she mentioned, that's supposed to be on by default. The special code that you have to say before, you know, before you can actually buy something on it. So it would appear that somebody turned it off. Now, of course, the parent's concern is, is that you're, you know, like, well, hopefully they won't. I mean, I'm glad that she, she was a little humble about this because she's like, well, hopefully the kids won't figure out how to use the special code. Um, well, you know, I hate to break it to you, mom, but <laughs> kids are brilliant and they're going to figure that out really fast. Uh, and kind of, you know, I mean, yes, it, it's a crazy story. I mean, and it, it's, it's probably, you know, very much a rarity, I would assume. Um, but there's a little something extra here that, that I'm, I'm a little concerned about. And this is just, this is, you know, one of those, maybe, maybe a dystopian little vision of mine or something, but I want to bring it up anyway. I mean, I think the story's you know, crazy in itself. And like I said, it's not, my guess is the parents must've turned off that security code in the first place. Okay. But two things, one is, is that this very much proves, okay. That, you know, look, Kids copy what you do. They copy everything you do. They, they figure out all of this stuff. Now, no one really knows what exactly, you know, the, the little girl said that allowed her to, to order the cookies. Like how, you know, I mean, kind of the argument goes that, well, the, the echo got it confused and, you know, pretty much the, the little girl said it probably said something to the effect. I want to play with this dollhouse and I want some cookies and Amazon echo went and got it. Okay. Uh, but you know, let's be clear here that this is absolute proof. Look, yeah, kids are going to copy every little single thing, you know, you do. So maybe pay attention to how you interact with technology because kids are going to mimic that. Okay. You know, that's just, that's just for parents, not a warning. It's just a suggestion. Pay attention to how you're interacting with technology. Like, you know, if, if you're worried about all these darn kids are growing up and all they do is look at their phones and yet you parent are constantly looking at your phone. Well, guess where they learn that shit from? That all what I just said should be obvious, but maybe it isn't. So I said it now, the other part that's a little concerning is that in the future, let's say that this, you know, this, the smart home category actually takes off. Let's say, and again, that's kind of one of our main goals of doing the internet of things segment on sovereign tech in the first place is I want IOT. I want that entire category to die, to not be a thing. Okay. I mean, you can have smart things. I just don't want internet connected things. Those are two very different things. You know, those are two very different products, two very different, you know, market categories. Okay. Now my concern is, is that kids with, I mean, yeah, how are parents not going to know that this is happening, but like, what if, you know, what if you're in a certain family, I don't know, to where, you know, kids can just go ahead and, and order from Amazon or whatever. My concern is, is that you're going to have a generation or at least some people grow up that they see Amazon as their provider. They see Alexa as their provider. They're like, oh, Alexa brings me all the nice things. I just speak, or even if it's just like, this is how parents get things. They're going to, th- I mean, they're effectively going to think of Amazon as Santa Claus and it's going to be real, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's not going to be on reindeers, but it's going to be on a drone or something along those lines, right? Maybe coming down from a blimp. We talked about that. I mean, it's kind of magical to consider the world where that's possible, where you just talk to this little cylinder at the corner of the room and what you want ends up appearing, especially if you're like in a city where they have, what is it? Amazon now is is that where, yeah. Amazon now where like you can, you could order some jelly beans and you'd have them inside of a half hour from Amazon. 
I'm a little concerned about like, like what exactly this perception, you know, how is this going to look? What, what does this end up looking like? I'm not saying that the world can't be set up that way necessarily. Okay. But I mean, when, you know, what's the confusion for children when they start to see that, Hey, the thing that, that brings all the goodies home, you know, is, you know, that I can talk to about all this, like, boy, this is really helpful. And they just keep talking to it. And then they're just going to keep talking and talking, you know, into the cylinder, telling it all of its, you know, deepest, darkest secrets and desires. And all of that information is just end up being given to Amazon. And then by default, it's all going, you know, effectively to the U S government or something. Um, I think there needs to be, I'm not going to give you any like hardcore answers here. I mean, yes, I want IOT to die. Okay. But I'm just saying that I think there needs to be a lot more thought into how exactly we interact with things like, you know, with a lot of these virtual assistants. And then how is that going to affect your children? Because they are going to mimic you. And what exactly are they going to mimic? Because I don't think that those conversations are being had with children saying, hey, understand, this talks to a company that doesn't need to fucking know everything about you. Okay, little Johnny? Woo! It is, uh, (laughs) while we're talking about, you know, companies where this isn't an issue, say a company where privacy is at the core and say a company where, you know, they love things that, you know, right down to the money is private. Like say they love Bitcoin. I want to tell you about agoristhosting.com. They are a sovereign tech sponsor. I am so honored to have them on board as a sponsor. They are a web host. Listen to me. If you want a website or if you want to deal in a real free market, one that Alexa isn't going to be touching, baby, you want to do like on open bazaar where you can get all the good stuff. Woo. Talk about goodies. You want to be dealing with agoristhosting.com. It's A-G-O-R-I-S-T hosting.com. They will get you hooked up. You want to start a business on there. You want to get entrepreneurial. They, they've got you covered. This is, in my opinion, one of the best web hosts on the planet today. And certainly one of the best businesses on the planet today. They've got the right attitude They, you know, and they deal, they want to deal in cryptocurrencies. They don't want to deal with all, you know, with, with all this crap, like we're talking about, you know, with IOT and everything that they want, they want to be dealing, you know, the right way, doing great business, getting you secured. And they are backing, they help out activists because boy, if you're an activist, don't get into IOT. <laughs> okay. But I mean, they want to help out activists, individuals, organizations. They're all about it. Agoristhosting.com. We thank them for supporting Sovereign Tech. For tech history, another one of our newer segments uh, for the, the the present run we're on with uh, with Sovereign Tech. Of course, every twenty five episodes we uh, we shake things up, and we've been experimenting a lot with this recent run of twenty five episodes. Now, what I am about to play for you, we're going to get into another clip, and I want to talk about it. But this is an absolutely fascinating clip for tech history. This is from nineteen ninety nine, and it is from the BBC, and it is the late great, and I emphasis on the great David Bowie getting interviewed. Um, and a question comes up asking him saying, you know, well, he says that if he was a teenager in the nineties, he would not have become a musician. He would have done something else. He would have gotten involved in the internet and the, what he says, I think will surprise you. And it turns into this huge conversation. I mean, it's not terribly long, but it turns into this whole conversation about the future of the internet and kind of technology in general. And I want, I want you to hear it. And then I want to, I want to break into it because he has just some brilliant things uh, uh, to say and that I want to comment on. So here we go. 
Starting out now, I yeah. think, did I read somewhere that you said if you were 19 you wouldn't go into the music business? I think that's probably quite right. I think, I think I'd probably just be a, um, a fan and a collector of records. Uh, what would you do? I, I, I wanted to be a musician because it seemed, um, it seemed rebellious, it seemed subversive. It felt like uh, one could affect change um, to a form. It, uh, it was very hard to hear music when I was younger, you know. Um, but when I, when I was really young, you had to tune into AFN radio to hear the American mm. records. Uh, there, there was no MTV, and there was no, it wasn't sort of wall-to-wall blanket mm. music. And so therefore it had a kind of a, a, a call-to-arms kind of mm. feeling to it. That this is the thing that will change things. This is uh, a dead dodgy occupation mm. to have. It's still, oh, produce signs of horror from people if you said yeah, I'm, a, I'm in rock and roll it was mm. my goodness now it's a career opportunity and the internet is now uh, uh, carries the flag of, of being subversive and possibly rebellious and chaotic nihilistic and oh yes it is it's a, forget about the microsoft element the the monopolies do not have a monopoly maybe on programs what you like about the f fact what you like about it is the fact that Anyone can say anything or do anything. Uh, from my stand, from where I am, because of the, uh, by virtue of the fact that I am a pop singer yeah. and writer, um, I, I really, I really like, I embrace the idea that there's a new demystification process going on between the artist and the audience. Um, I think when you look back at, say, this last decade, there hasn't really been one single entity, artist or group that have personified or become the brand name for the 90s, it, like it was starting to fade a little in the 80s and in the 70s there were still definite artists, in the 60s there were the Beatles and the Hendrix and in the 50s there was Presley. Now it's uh, subgroups and genres, it's hip-hop, it's girl power, it's a, a it's a communal kind of thing, mm. it's about the community, it's becoming more and more about the audience because the point of having somebody who led the forces has disappeared because the vocabulary of rock is too well known. It's a currency that is not, um, it's not devoid of meaning anymore, but it's certainly only a conveyor of information now. It's not a conveyor of rebellion. And the internet has taken on that, as I say. Um, and, uh, and so I find that a terribly exciting area. So from my standpoint, being a, um, an artist, I'd like to see what the new construction is between artist and, and audience. There is a breakdown. There's a... Uh, personified, I think, by the, uh, the rave culture of the last few years, where the audience is at least as important as whoever is playing at the rave. Um, it's almost like the artist is to accompany the, the audience and what the audience are doing. And that feeling is very much permeating music and, and, and permeating the Internet. But what is it specifically about the Internet? I mean, anybody can say anything. Uh, yeah. And it all adds up to what? I mean, it seems to me there's, no, there's nothing cohesive about it in the way that there was something cohesive about the, re the youth revolution in music. Oh, but the, absolutely. And because I think that we, uh, at the time, up until at least the mid-70s, really felt that we were still living under the, uh, 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 or with, in the guise of a, a single and absolute uh, created society where there were known truths and known lies 
and there was no kind of duplicity or pluralism about the things that we believed in. That started to break down rapidly in the 70s, and the idea of a, a duality in the way that we live. In, in, there are always two, three, four, five sides to every question, that this singularity disappeared. And uh, that, I believe, has produced such a medium as the Internet, which absolutely establishes and shows us that we are living in total fragmentation. You don't think that some of the claims being made for it are, are hugely exaggerated? I mean, when the telephone was invented, people made amazing claims. I for know, it. The, president, for example. the president at the time, when it was first invented, he was outrageous. He said he foresaw the day in the future when every town in America would have a telephone. Now that, what, how dare he claim like that? Absolute bullshit. No, you see, I don't, I don't, I don't agree, I don't agree. I think the internet, I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg. I think the potential of what the internet is going to do to society, both good and bad, is unimaginable. I think we're actually on the cusp of something exhilarating and terrifying. It's just a tool though, isn't it? No, it's not, no. No, it's an alien life form. What do you think, I mean, when you think then about the Is there life on Mars? <laughs> yes, it's just landed here. But yeah. that's, it's a simply a different delivery system there. You're arguing about something more profound. Oh, yeah, I'm talking about the, the, the actual context and the state of content is going to be so different to anything that we can really envisage at the moment. Where the interplay between the user and the provider will be so in simpatico, it's going to it's going to crush our ideas of what m mediums are all about. Uh, but it's happening in every form. It's happening in visual art. The breakthroughs of the early part of the century with people like Duchamp, who were so prescient in what they were doing and putting down the idea that the piece of work is not finished until the audience come to it and add their own interpretation. And what the piece of art is about is the grey space in the middle. That grey space in the middle is what the 21st century is going to be about. Remarkably prescient words. I mean, wow. Like, there, there is so much to unpack, you know, unpack in what David Bowie was saying there. Uh, I think it's funny. If, if you watch the video, I put a link in the show notes so you can watch the actual YouTube video. If you watch the video, like, the, the guy from the BBC, the guy that's interviewing, is just, like, shaking his head the whole time. He's like, this guy's fucking nuts. You know? <laughs> but, but in many ways, Bowie was, you know, very much right on. Uh, I mean, there's obviously some things he didn't necessarily predict, but then, you know, who's who was expecting him to predict the entire future? Um, I do want to, you know, before I break into some of what he had to say, because I love a lot of what he had to say, I, I want to... Uh, so, cause this video is kind of making the rounds on the big bad internet, you know, on the World Wide web. And I, I just, I want to demystify, you know, he talked about demystification. I want to demystify it a little bit. Some of what he's talking about, like kind of this, you know, this interaction and, and, and this breaking down of, you know, digital and the physical and all this at the time in 1999, when that interview was being had, uh, one of my favorite video games of all time, there's a lot of those, but this is one of them. Uh, came out for, for PC at the time. It came out for Dreamcast a year later, but it was Omicron, the Nomad Soul. Now, this is a game you recently, I think it just became available on GOG and it's on Steam as well. Uh, so you can play it now and it is a revolutionary game. I mean, it is a really, really cool game. Uh, and it's kind of a third person sort of RPG style. And 
that that's not necessarily what makes it interesting, even though it does a really good job of that. But understand this, that when this game came out, uh, David Bowie was a big part of it. Like he plays kind of like one of the, or he, his visage, uh, is used for, you know, kind of a villain of, of sorts within the game. Um, and even like he has a song that plays in it and all that, like David Bowie was a selling point for this game. So he worked knee deep, you know, within this game. Now understand the kind of the more unique thing about this game is that when it opens up, you are playing this character that is like a, like a detective of sorts in this other universe, but he travels supposedly, you know, according to the game, like if you're sitting in front of your computer screen or your TV screen, suddenly this character jumps out from like this portal on your screen and starts talking to you, you know, to you, like this, this, this character that you play in the game starts talking to you, the game player and is saying, look, you know, I need you to download your soul into me and all this. It's like, and then we can, we can travel. I can go back. We got to do it before the portal closes and you can save all of us. Like it was one of those weird moments. There's other games that do this metal gear solid, uh, did it where the, like the, the, the kernel there or whatever, like at some point starts talking to you, the game player, not to snake. Um, or, uh, 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 eternal darkness was another one on the GameCube, uh, where it would really mess with reality. Like it would tell you that you're, you're, controller was unplugged when it wasn't unplugged at all, but it was designed literally to fuck with you, uh, you know, so that you would go unplug it and then you'd lose the game. Uh, so, uh, or, you know, there'd be problems anyway. But, uh, so, I mean, a lot of what he kind of described, I feel like was kind of laid out in the game Omicron. So, like, I don't want to give him, you know, total credit for being that president. And I am not taking it. He is a, he was a brilliant man. I am a huge fan. I am not taking anything really away from him. I'm just saying that understand a lot of what he's talking about there might not have been him so much being prophetic, but him seeing it getting implemented in a video game like the game Omicron. Okay. So, so let me, let me just, you know, get that out of the way. But beyond that, a lot of the things he had to say in the abstract, I think were so right on. Like, I love the idea where he's talking about, of course, he doesn't realize that he likely would not have had the, just the, you know, wild success that he had as a musician, as an artist, uh, if it weren't for, or, you know, if he, if he grew up in a world with the internet, like that's where things are, are kind of different because I mean, now like he's right. I love how he talked about the niches and the fracturing because that was something that really, honestly, it really didn't exist then. it existed, but it didn't have a place to come together and actually become say a force for change either internally for people or maybe even, uh, you know, externally. Okay. Uh, because yeah, I mean, niches have always existed. You know, you used to have the zine scene, right. You know, magazines, and that would always appeal to certain people's, you know, niches and, and, you know, their, their, their particular tastes and all that. And that was definitely the precursor to that. But the internet is what made this fracturing of society. And, and I mean, you gotta be careful. Like he starts talking about, you know, dualism and like these different truths. I mean, there are objective truths. There is an objective reality. Okay. But how people, you know, people's like perhaps their difference in mores and norms and all that, that that's where the fracturing is. And the internet, you know, empowered people, you know, to, to explore and to, you know, find, uh, uh, find kinship perhaps, um, you know, in, in connecting with other people that shared those same, you know, different mores and all of this. And, and the internet gave you a home, a safe place to kind of, to gather and talk about that and safe place, meaning that you were beyond, you know, ridicule, say like in high school or whatever, you know, however that ends up, you know, shaping up, don't, don't go knocking safe places, please. Um, because you use them on the internet too. And yes, you fucking do. I know you do. Uh, so, 
you know, like I, I thought that that was so cool. And, and, but for him to recognize that there is a specific, a very special kind of thriving that can happen with art itself, art and culture, which in many ways are one and the same. Okay. For those two things to be able to come together because of that fracturing, that was the genius of what he had to say. That was the genius of the communication of the internet age, which is effectively the communication age on steroids. Right. And maybe it's even going to, you know, get beyond that to where, you know, all these different fracturings have their own little internets, right? That's one of the main things that we like to push for on sovereign tech for him to see the value in that to where, you know, all new kinds of new kinds of art, new kinds of cultures can come out of the fact that, you really don't have a completed product until the audience and, you know, and the person, you know, sort of, sort of come together. It's not any kind of communalism. It's just, you know, that that's, that's how it is. I mean, and you could say things have been that way before. I mean, you know, when does, when does music really come alive at a concert? <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, an individual can play music and they can play it for themselves all day long and it's still out there and it's still great art. I'm sure blah, blah, blah. But when it really becomes something so special, you know, so huge and perhaps even like life-changing for all involved is when you bring in everybody together. You kind of talked about the rave scene, how it's not just the music. There's more to it. There's more than just the music there. It's, it's an experience that you have. And I think that, you know, that there's so much to take into that and to, to foster technologies, not just the internet, though that might be the delivery system at the moment, but to foster technologies that embrace this, you know, this, this absolute connection, you might, you might think what I'm saying is, is, is commonplace and that's fine. But guess what? In 1999, it was not. And that's the beauty of this is that that's what what Bowie really saw coming was the fact that you could have all of these different groups that could absolutely thrive, support each other. I mean, you think of things like Patreon or whatever, even Bitcoin that empowers people, you know, to kind of get paid for, I don't want to say every little thing they do, but you know, you could have a culture that has their own miniature economy and that that's what, that's what the internet empowered. That's what this interconnectivity really empowered. And, and man, that's, that's brilliant for him to recognize. Now, again, one of the big issues there is that, you know, while you can do all of that, while there is that, that breaking down, like Bowie was talking about, and we've already seen it, you know, you think of people like Lindsey Sterling or some other YouTube artists and all that, where, and YouTube recently just started laying out a whole bunch of new monetization options because they know this needs to be a thing. Um, we, we didn't get to get into those this week. Maybe I'll get into them next week. Okay. But the fact that, uh, you know, the, these, these, these fractures, you know, the, these, these fractured communities can actually like, you know, kind of self self fund each other is really exciting. But at the same time, I don't think that that really allows for, unless you have some very special people within your community, it doesn't allow for you to reach the levels of wealth that say David Bowie did. And that's kind of the thing that I think he missed now him being an artist, you know, he, might not have been thinking so much, you know, in such a serious artist, maybe he wasn't thinking so much on the monetary side of things. And this is a conversation that really needs to be had because a lot of people were predicting how the entertainment industry would look today. David Bowie, there was others who did as well. And they were, they were largely right on in much of what they had to say. However, now, and I'm not saying I have the answers to this. Now we need to be looking at like, I mean, because and, you know, I take a little bit of issue with this too. You know, it's a shame that today, really, you cannot make millions of dollars just playing guitar as to where 20, 
you know, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, you could just be a great fucking guitar player and nothing else. And you could make millions of dollars from a record deal. Now you could say that maybe the, the way the, the music industry was set up was completely unnatural, that that's like not how, you know, an actual market signal would have worked out or something like that. I, you know, I, I know there's a bunch of arguments to have around this. Okay. But the entertainment industry has changed. And the problem I see though, is that I wonder whether or not people can actually like, can you get to these levels of, you know, fame and fortune like David Bowie had? And that's what, you know, that's, that's not so much what he predicted. And I wonder what exactly, like, I would love to ask him what exactly was he thinking when, you know, like, like, how did he see that getting funded? Did he just expect everybody? I mean, the economy might not have been the worst thing in 1999, depending what part of the world you're in, you know, was he expecting everybody to just have so much money that they were going to kind of put that together? Was he expecting that advertisers were going to get in on that game? I don't know, but he was right. He was right. Everything is shaped up exactly like that as far as the entertainment industry goes. And, you know, the people at the BBC and some others, you know, obviously, well, the BBC is kind of government funded. But at the end of the day, still, they're they're sort of freaking out. They don't know what to do about all this. Uh, Yeah, I just I was in awe at hearing that and how right on he was. And it is amazing. We want to embrace. And again, this is the main point that I love that he took away was that or that he made was that we want to embrace these fractures. Don't try to bring them together. Don't get them to work together. Don't, don't go for, oh, we need to work together. We need to be united and all. No, 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 no. You don't, you don't, you don't. Because when you get united, that's when, that's when you have, you know, companies taking over and taking control. Not that, and I'm, I know there's advantages, disadvantages, either way you look at it. Okay. That's where you end up with, you know, the, the record companies that they decide who's the big deal is to where, you know, when it's the internet deciding, you can kind of, you can end up with the Lindsey Sterling where the fans sort of decide who becomes a big deal. And if you've never listened to Lindsey Sterling's albums, holy shit. I mean, I, I love every one. All three have been great. And a lot of her singles and all that stuff, phenomenal. But embrace these fractures. We just, you know, you got to figure out, like, how does an economy build around that fracturing? That's that's sort of the big question. Without it having to get to crazy amounts of scale to where, you know, effectively that fracture becomes the system, you know. And, and that's something that we're going to be wrestling with, but it's, it's amazing how many people, and it's certainly amazing that David Bowie, you know, really predicted so well, just exactly the shape we'd be in, uh, you know, 10, you know, 15 years later. So I just, I thought that was fascinating when I heard it and he schooled that guy, you know, and he was right. He was right. I mean, you never like usually the predictions of this is why I don't mind on sovereign tech going to some wild predictions. Because usually we underpredict. You know, usually futurists and tech journalists, as wild a claim as they make, they usually underpredict pretty heavily. And I think even David Bowie, in some ways, was underpredicting there uh, uh, quite a bit. So, anyway, just a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Uh, we'll be back with some more Sovereign Time. Now, baby, I got to tell you, when I want to keep an eye on things, all things going on in the cryptocurrency space, when I want to keep an eye on prices, when I want to know about the new tools, the new wallets, or what are the best ones to use, all of that stuff, or when I want to get social when it comes to cryptocurrency, I go to CryptoCompare.com. These, oh man, I mean, I love this website. I'm not kidding when I say I leave it open 24-7 on my big rig I mean, it's just, it's ready for whenever a question comes up for me for Sovereign Tech about, a, about you know, something in crypto or whatever, you know, I'm always checking that out. Uh, and just, just to keep an eye on things, just to know what's going on, to, you know, to keep fresh, keep that flavor going. Uh, I I mean, and they list off everything, you know, Bitcoin, all your altcoins, they, you know, they're, they're, they got you covered. So I want you to check out CryptoCompare.com and I cannot thank them enough for being a sponsor of Sovereign Tech. 
All right, let's get back to the show. The Climax. Spoiler alerts, spoiler alerts, everybody. Spoiler alerts. I am going to spoil the shit out of this. And, you know, actually, sadly, I don't think a whole lot of people care to go see these movies. So maybe I don't, maybe I'm not too worried about it. Maybe you aren't either. Uh, what I'm going to talk about for this week's climax, of course, the climax is where I can talk about anything, whatever the hell I want to talk about. It could be movies, TV shows, books, a topic, uh, novels, you know, comic books, maybe I already said some of those, you name it, I could talk about it. Um, and what I want to talk about this week is actually underworld blood wars. This is the, uh, fifth in the, in the underworld movie series, uh, saga. And, uh, and it's just now in theaters. And like I said, spoiler alerts, I'm going to get into it. Um, now the underworld series itself, I've been a fan of really since the first one. Uh, and, and the first one, which came out in 2001, just an amazing little film. Of course, this is with Kate Beckinsale. It's all about, you know, the vampires versus the werewolves and the lichens. And there is a difference between lichens and werewolves, but the lichens are just effectively higher order werewolves. Of course, that can shift back into humans. Uh, I, I mean, I know you're going to say, oh, they're cheesy. Oh, the, the dialogue's rough, blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, or they're derivative. They, you know, they took stuff from White Wolf, blah, you know, I, I know all the arguments, believe me. I was the king of the nerds. I know the deal. I've, I've been around. Okay. Uh, what I think where underworld really stands, I mean, and of course, Kate Beckinsale, you know, she, she does a phenomenal job. She's, she's great as the character of Celine, which a lot of people don't know. Celine was actually based off of, um, one of my favorite mutants, uh, in, uh, in, you know, in X-Men history, uh, that being Celine herself. So uh, the black queen, right. You know, that's been around Nova Roma, all that. Anyway, that, that has nothing to do with why I like underworld, but, so, you know, with Underworld, it's really, yeah, I mean, what what originality, honestly, do you expect out of a vampire and werewolf story today? None. So what I think when you don't when you're not necessarily going to have originality, what do you have to do? You got to bring on the style. OK, I mean, you can get some originality here and there, and I think they've actually delivered that particularly in Blood Wars. OK, but you got to bring on the style. And I am a person. OK, as a creator, I am a person that like I really appreciate style. A lot, you know, in fact, I might even be one of those people that's almost a little style over substance, right? Like that's, that's kind of a thing in art. Uh, I, I could definitely maybe fall into that category. Maybe that's why kiss is my favorite band, even though I think kiss has substance in spades, uh, but they definitely got the style and it's the right one. So anyway, underworld, I think, you know, it, it so, so, so much relies upon the style and it's, it's pretty sexy, even though some people say it's not sexy. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I don't know. I don't know what movies you're watching. I'm not sure you know, what, what clothing exactly you missed when watching underworld. Uh, but I think it's sexy as hell, you know? Um, so I, I love the whole series. Definitely. My, my two favorite were well up until blood wars. Again, this is where we're going to get into some spoiler territory up until blood wars. Probably my two favorite were one and three, which the first one, which came out in 2001, that was, you know, or 2003, I'm sorry, not 2001. It came, was Underworld. Then Underworld Evolution came out in 2006, which takes place right after the first Underworld, um, which, you know, understand how big of a deal Underworld was, the first one. That was a movie made for $22 million. It was a $22 million budget. TV shows have budgets bigger than that, some of them, um, per episode. And, or, well, at least maybe for a pilot, right? Like that's what I'm comparing it to. Like, uh, the pilot for Star Trek Voyager had a, had a budget of 26 million. So, and this is a full on theatrical release movie. Um, so it had a budget of 22 million and it did 95 million. I mean, that's big, you know, percentage wise, that's huge. 
So it's no wonder that there was another one. Of course, the other one, you know, Evolution had a much larger budget. Um, and it was it was fine. You know, I, I, th- I thought it was a good movie. I, I enjoyed it. And then the third one was Rise of the Lycans, which was actually a prequel that came out in 2009. That had, oh, Rona Mitra. Woo, baby. <laughs> Uh, and, and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the prequel. I thought it was cool. And they brought back John Malkovich who had been in the the series. Um, you know, he was in, well, he ended up being in, yeah, he was in evolution a bit as well, uh, in the beginning of it. But, and then you had, uh, the fourth one, which was underworld awakening, which I didn't mind awakening either, but awakening was good. A lot of people don't know this. J. Michael Straczynski, the guy that did Babylon five. Um, he, he actually co-wrote or was a co-writer on, on underworld awakening on the fourth one. Um, so, you know, all four, I really enjoyed. I think they all add things, uh, an awakening picks up. Well, it, it ends up what? 12 years after, uh, evolution eventually, like it picks up right after, but then it, it fast forwards kind of 12 years later. And then blood wars takes place right after awakening. Like, I mean, they, they just, they, they hit the ground running and I love that. And kudos to Kate Beckinsale for like, she hasn't aged today. <laughs> she looks the goddamn same in every movie. Granted, there might be some CGI involved in that, but regardless it's there. I mean, she still has to take care of her body. Uh, and she obviously, you know, is, uh, is, is doing that. So blood wars picks up right after awakening. Um, and you know, just some of the elements like this is now next to the first one. This is my favorite one. Uh, it's a pity that it's not doing serious money. So I do recommend you go spend the money and go to theaters to see it. I did myself and lovely hyper intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy. We went for a good time. Uh, she loved it. She, she really enjoyed uh, this entry into the series as well. She enjoyed the entire underworld series too. And you know, and she's nodding her head right there. <laughs> uh, thumbs up as well. So with blood wars, I think what really put it up for me was, I mean, the action was awesome. Of course, Uh, and they didn't, you know, somehow each one of these movies keeps adding to the mythology. And that's one of the things that I love is how this, this series has such a deep mythology. There is a whole world that you can explore, uh, you know, as far as like what, you know, all the different aspects, um, you know, of what's happening in the movies that like you could, I mean, you could easily flesh out, you know, a massive encyclopedia, I think just with what gets presented in the films. And I love that. I love that world creation. That's one of the beauties of underworld. What it does is it really delivers that, that, that world creation. Of course, the other great thing is it has that badass female lead, uh, which I, I really enjoy. Same reason. I like the resident evil movies. Um, and this adds to it. Like there, one of the things that really put, put me over the top of this, here's a spoiler alert is the idea of the Nordic vampires where they have like this Nordic coven where they have to go way up. I think it's, I don't know, maybe the Netherlands or I don't know, somewhere, uh, they have to, cause the bulk of the underworld story takes place in Eastern Europe, which is cool as well. I like that, that it's not American centric. Uh, but this Nordic coven, like they're, they're kind of pacifists. They all have white hair instead of black. Uh, and they have like a bunch of, they have a degree of differing powers and everything. And they're in this giant ice castle. You can see why this would appeal to me (laughs) because I love the winter. I love the snow. Uh, and, and well, anyway, but there's other elements that that were great too. Uh, and so delivering, you know, there's a lot of the sexiness in it, uh, as usual. In fact, this movie, this one, so adding in that was great, but then also this was probably the most sensual of the bunch. Uh, because I mean, there's a point where, you know, one of the main characters was Sirena, uh, not Celine, but I think her name is Sirena, which is played by an actress from Da Vinci's demons. What a great show. Uh, you know, like just takes another vampire, his guy, and, you know, just kind of like gets him on his knees and it's very clear he's eating her pussy. I'm like, 
great. This is good. You know? So, I mean, like this is, this is definitely, you know, very, again, very, very sexy, uh, uh, film in my opinion, it, it really delivered, you know, on, on that aspect, but the, the Nordic vampires, I thought that that was really cool. And then, you know, kind of the whole story goes along and you end up with this, you know, you, you definitely have the makings for, they could keep, you know, they could do another movie easy. Uh, in fact, apparently that's already planned. Even if, you know, honestly, I think even if, even if budget wise, or even if, uh, uh, revenue wise, Blood Wars doesn't do very well. We might still get that sixth movie, but supposedly the sixth movie, sixth, sixth movie is being made. And there's also going to be a TV show. There is plenty of room for both. Uh, I mean, especially with what Blood Wars um, set up. So I love the addition of the new style of vampire, which that I think is kind of original. I think that's kind of a unique idea that there's sort of this pacifist style vampire. I mean, not that they still don't fight when they need to, but, um, but yeah, you know, kind of this more peaceful vampire style, you know, hanging up in the, I mean, it's almost like, like blood elves to elves. Right. And, and I thought that was just a great, uh, addition. And, you know, then there's building on more to the mythology of the Corvinus clan, you know, where some of them can walk in the light and everything. It's just, it has, it's very sexy, had tremendous action. I mean, like some of the action sequences I thought were just great. And then it has like these awesome new elements, uh, you know, like the, like the Nordic vampires or the, you know, the Nordic coven. So I think this is a great movie. I really, really loved it. I love the whole, the whole saga because it's such, it's this world you can really get lost in. Uh, you know, in this great mythology. And and again, the style is, is there. I mean, everybody's wearing triple black. Why wouldn't I like that, baby? Woo! I'm all about it. So, <laughs> anyway, do see Blood Wars uh, if you haven't. If you even remotely like vampire movies, I think it's good. It had a couple flaws, a couple points where I think the editing seemed a little rushed. Uh, but other than that, it was great. Anyway, enough for this week. Woo! Sign up for Patreon, baby. SovereignTech.com. I'll you see you on the other side. experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com, that's S-O-V-R-Y-N-Tech.com, and connect with us there. Find links from today's show, and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to the Evolution. Evolution.